This is Friday Night Frights, brought to you by Starburst Magazine. Hello and welcome to Friday Night Frights, the weekly horror podcast from Starburst Magazine. I'm John Tolson and on tonight's show we have Chris Cook and Stephen Scheel, co-directors of the Mayhem Horror Film Festival. Starburst readers will recall that last October I posted a series of event reviews from Mayhem, the annual horror film festival held at Nottingham's Broadway Cinema. With many of the movies at Mayhem, like Maniac and American Mary, now on release or about to open, I thought this would be a good time to catch up with the festival's co-directors Chris Cook and Stephen Shield to pick over the bones of Mayhem 2012. Guys, thanks very much for inviting me to Mayhem. It's my, it was my first Mayhem and it was hopefully not my last. It was definitely a great time. I uh, just wanted to start off asking you both how you started the festival and why. Um, I guess it came from uh, the fact that the, the three of us, myself, Chris, and our other partner in Mayhem, Gareth Howell, um, we're all kind of horror fans and we're all kind of sitting around one night talking about having been to horror film festivals. Um, and we kind of started off doing just around each other's houses, kind of like horror nights where we'd, we'd try and see, you know, stay up the night watching horror films as a kind of like mini all-nighter. Becomes the test of how old you're getting when you have less and less of those nights and they're all shorter. Yeah. Um, but yeah. It, it kind of came out of that, really. It came, it came out of um, the fact that we were horror fans and the fact that there, there hadn't been um, and wasn't a local horror film festival. Gareth and I had both, uh, without knowing each other, uh, in the uh, early 90s, had been uh, regular attendees of Black Sunday in Manchester. Um, and it was a fantastic festival. I know a lot of people at the time were heading down to shock around the clock and uh, all these kind of things down in London. And um, I was living in Stoke-on-Trent at the time. And it, was, it, just, it was still one of those things that was out, out of my um, financial kind of ability to go and spend a long weekend or do an all-nighter even down in, in London. Whereas going to to Manchester and spending you know like twenty odd hours in the company of like minded horror fans was really really good fun and it was a, a great way of seeing films especially at that time in the early nineties when things were just going to go straight to VHS um, and it was it was one of those things quite a seminal thing so sitting around talking Gareth Steve and I about you know our love of the genre and the fact that we we kept thinking wouldn't it be cool to see this on the big screen or what if this film was screening with that one and the fact that we'd been to a kind of um, similar kind of festival an all-nighter it, it meant that we we started thinking well maybe we should actually talk to broadway cinema about the possibility of putting something on i'd been uh, the co-director of bang short film festival for a, a few years and um we started to get, you, you, there were kind of trends in short filmmaking, you know what I mean? If, if Tarantino's been very popular, there's a lot of films about guys with guns and briefcases and so on, or well, there were at the time. But there was always a consistent amount of very independent horror shorts that were being made. And, and a lot of them were very, very interesting and very good, you know what I mean? And you kept thinking, oh, they're not getting like a proper representation, you know what I mean? They're not being sort of singled out collectively, if that makes sense and given a showcase. 
So we kind of thought, well, we could do that as well. We never we, we never got the opportunity to do an all-nighter. I think that was the original... That was the original plan with Broadway, yeah. yeah. But what we did do was we set up to do a short film screening, a uh, short horror film screening. Um, and that was successful, and it kind of grew from there, really. We started off just doing the, the one night where it was a compilation of short films from uh, around the country. And then the next year, we decided to do it again, and this time we got a, a special preview of a feature. And it kind of grew from that to the point where at about five, six years ago, we decided to do a, a full weekend. And um, and then we kind of established that at the end of the end of October, kind of around Halloween, that that would be our, our main weekend. It's just, it's just grown from there. It's grown from <clears throat> basically one night with short films into what Mayhem is now, which is pretty much five or six days of, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of, of mayhem indeed yeah. and just to point out to uh, readers who might not be familiar with mayhem that um it's based in the broadway cinema isn't it in nottingham that's yeah. right yeah so it's a, it's a kind of a partnership with them i suppose isn't it and do, yeah, they, they, are you draw, drawing on the kind of local film goers are you finding that the people that, that normally would attend the broadway are coming to mayhem or are you appealing to a, a different audience altogether well, what we try and do because Broadway's very much a kind of um, it's uh, kind of more of a kind of art house cinema, really, um, and it's seen as that kind of art house choice for the the, the local um, audience. So, um, even though our, our audience, in some ways, can, you know, could be seen as being separate from that, we always try and uh, put a few events in that we know or suspect will appeal to a you know what we normally call a broadway audience kind of art house audience so we'll always have a kind of you know classic um movie like the the haunting on um on a sunday uh, but even we- there we end up doing i suppose something slightly different we know that we're going to be able to appeal to that mainstream broadway audience um but the version of the haunting that we put on would be the much rarer so-called director's cut of it and um you know eyes without a face for example you're always it, by appealing to the Broadway sort of hardcore art house crowd and to our own kind of um, more sort of um, selective horror uh, festival audience, we end up getting packed out screenings of Eyes Without a Face in mm. a French film. And you keep thinking, what a fantastic thing to be at a packed out screening of Georges Frangie's Eyes Without a Face. That's such a rare thing to say, I think. Do you know mm. what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it works like that where we can program you know brand new films and previews and premieres and get cult classics in that have immediate crossover appeal and also to point out to uh to viewers that you're both directors yourself uh Stephen, uh horror film buffs will know you from uh mum and dad and also the your new film dead mine and chris um film girls should know you from one F- one for the road which is a fantastic movie um, a non-horror right, movie, though. You know me. <laughs> I've been very, very quiet since the release of One for the Road. But, um, yeah, getting on with writing stuff. I kind of mm. think that's another one of the reasons that um, the festival is the way it is. Yeah. Well, because we've got, um, obviously, quite a bit of experience of, I suppose, what people call the film industry. I'm not quite sure, sure. where the film industry is. But, do you know what I mean? The, the ethereal nature of the film industry. We know what it's like to go to festivals as a filmmaker as well as to attend them um, as a fan. And uh, it's trying to find that balance, do you know what I mean, where 
we can invite guests and have conversations with them, with the audience, and, and make a much more inclusive festival, the kind of festival that we would like to attend as either filmmakers or we'd like to attend as an audience. Mm. I mean, because you must be one of the, one of the only uh, festivals that are actually organised by filmmakers. Um, uh, and I wondered if some of the, the crowd that I noticed, uh, you know, some of the young, young guys and, and girls who were there seemed as though they may well be film students. Are some of them um, film students that you, that you know? That's definitely true. In a few cases I teach... Um, yeah as well and uh, quite a few of the students but have become kind of regular attendees and uh, and some new faces you know what i mean but there's, there's an influx of film students it's always nice to see people that you go oh my god that guy's really interested in special effects makeup and he's working as a makeup artist you know in in low budget uh, independent horror films and you now there's a film student over there who you know has just written his first horror short and you think oh that's so it's so nice that they will do so for instance we had that uh, lovely screening of grabbers yeah and um, the director uh, said said during his his intro, instead of doing a Q and A, he'd be in the bar. So you end up with that quite nice thing afterwards, where you yeah. see a whole host of really interested uh, film students um, standing around, uh, wanting to ask questions that aren't just about you know tell us about the making of the film. Um, they're also very much about a specific kind of interest in the, their own interest in making films. So John Wright was really brilliant at then being able to kind of give new, you know, new filmmakers tips from his own experience, uh, almost like a one-to-one. So it's nice to have those kind of people in the audience as well as up in front of the, you know, in front of the audience talking about making films. They start to talk a, a lot more about that experience of making a film. Mm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And one of the one of the great things about mayhem is that you do feature um short films don't you as a, a screening of short films as a discrete screening in itself not just to uh yeah we don't have not one just to support. Su- support the features but it's, yeah. it's a great showcase isn't it in itself for... so again it's always rammed it's always rammed people really love short films it seems and um they're not bored you know the, uh, it's that thing of thinking oh my god we're going to give them nearly two hours of back-to-back short films um so we you know, we program it as carefully as we can and um, try and put as much variety in there as possible and, and spread them out effectively, you know what I mean, in terms of the overall program. And I guess people have that thing like they have for anthology films as well. If you didn't like that story, don't worry, there'll be another one along in a minute. Yeah. Um, and it is like that, do you know what I mean? You get like a really nice crowd response. It's lovely to hear so much applause in a cinema in two hours, you know what I mean, where people are applauding each and every film that's been up on screen. I guess one of the things we try to do with Mayhem, I mean, if we have any kind of, you know, mission statement, which we don't have a specific one, but one of the things I guess that we always talk about is this idea of being able to give the audience a kind of snapshot of where where horror is worldwide at the moment. So that includes the shorts and that includes the features. You know, we try and look far and wide for, for the stuff that we can put on. And obviously, you know, it depends on the availability, but we're, we're quite kind of open to, you know, to, to bringing films in. And I think we see it as a bit, as our remit kind of, to, to, to kind of give this kind of whole kind of idea of, you know, where horror is at the moment. Absolutely. It's like testing the waters, kind of litmus test. Again, what's out there? What are people making? What are the trends? What's exciting? Um, and obviously, I mean, it has to actually excite us in yeah. some well, you know, we're still kind of curators and, you know, archivists and film fans. And we're still, you know, trawling through hundreds of feature films um, and selecting the ones that we kind of think, not only are they available, I mean, that's one of the big issues for every independent 
um, film festival is availability of films. Not everyone can premiere films all the time. It's, it's very difficult. But the films that we select are the ones that we want the audience to watch with us. So can you take, take us through a little bit of what your selection process might be? I mean, how, how, how do you actually find the films? Presumably some, some of them are kind of sent to you, I suppose, some of the short films, the student films. But well, how, uh, how would you go about actually getting, yeah. th- getting, through, the, get, get, getting through the screeners and uh, finding the kind of final short list of films that you might want to include? Well, the, the short films, as you're saying, we'll, we'll create a deadline and do a call-out um, for, for short films, as well as um, going online um, and searching for, you know, actually you know, seeking out short films directly ourselves and short filmmakers and asking short filmmakers that we know uh, what they've been making and, and trying to just see as many short films as we possibly can. Similarly with features... Um, Yes, we'll get sent in screeners for features. Yeah, we'll talk to all the distributors uh, about them. We'll prey on everybody around the time of Cannes, all the sales agents, and start talking to them about which films we should be looking at. Uh, We'll go online um, with Sinando and um, talk directly to sales agents who are trying to get their films into festivals um, so that we can view them online well ahead of releases. And we'll get sent stuff directly from UK distributors um, and talk directly to them about what they're buying, what they're thinking of buying, what they want to present, um, what they want to give us. Because we've been going for a few years now, I think uh, we've got good relationships with a lot of distributors so that when we know, you know, Mayhem's coming up, we can talk to them and say, you know, what have you got coming up that that you think we might like, that, you know, that, that we can take a look at. So it's good to have that, to be in that position. I also have to say with the, with the shorts over the past couple of years we've been working with a woman called annie parry who is now our kind of shorts coordinator really and she does a lot of the work um in terms of tracking down shorts she'll Tons look, of work, yeah, yeah she'll she'll look out for shorts from around the world that and and actually contact filmmakers and and, and she'll be on, she'll be online uh, looking at all the kind yeah. of major um appropriate kind of websites and festivals other festivals as well internationally um and hassling I mean, really hassling them to pick yeah. them all and see what falls out. Uh, and it's really good um, to have, actually, you know, an, an extra person. When we say there's three of us, Gareth, Stephen, me, and yeah. in reality there's four with, with Annie doing all the work she does. And all the rest of the Broadway staff as well are, are fantastic and helpful, and they all seem to pitch in. What's really lovely, I think, is during the festival, I mean, one of the things we get for festival feedback, first of all, is the fact that people really like the venue. It's a great environment you know it's a comfortable cinema the seats are, the seats are nice the screenings are nice we have an absolutely fantastic and um, dedicated um uh, projection crew uh, who work with us as as technicians projectionists and massive horror film fans mm. throughout the entire festival but also through the whole build-up to the festival mm. uh, testing stuff asking what we're getting hyping stuff with us as well do you know what i mean trying to promote stuff then we've got amazing bar staff who get into the whole spirit of things with late bars, um, with being part of the entire festival. And the front of house, the box office and so on, are absolutely so 100% enthusiastic that the moment you walk into the cinema, I hope, and I think it really works, that the, you know, the patron who's, who's come to, to the festival for the whole weekend knows that they're in safe hands and that people are genuinely looking out for them the entire time. You know, making sure they're happy, making sure they're comfortable, making sure they've got a drink in their hand. Do you know what I mean? We, we like giving away free booze this year, or well, last year. 
was really good fun as well. Yeah, and, and the events that uh, sort of tied into the festival as well in the, in the sort of bar area, they're interesting, like the quiz and so on. It makes it into a real sort of fun event, as you say, especially after a, a couple of bottles of that free booze, whatever it was. I've yeah. not, not seen it in the shop since, but it was pretty pretty potent, whatever whatever it was. Tell us a little bit about some of the events, though, that, that we had this year. We, we've, we had some readings, didn't we? Uh, yeah, I mean, for the past couple of years, we've been... Um, putting on on halloween itself um a, a night of readings which are both um it's in collaboration with nottingham writer studio um so we have some live readings of local um writers reading either their own stories or or, or uh, adaptations of stories um that um or sometimes even kind of performed kind of short dramas that they do in the bar and we intersperse those Oops. with um screenings uh of um classic TV ghost stories, um, so read by people like Christopher Lee and Tom Baker. Yeah, the old classic TV ones that um, have yeah that have um, kind of graced the television screens and then fallen into obscurity. Not just the kind of you know the, they're, they're almost like the kind of the horror equivalent, the ghost story version of Jack and Ori. Some of those great ones, the Tom Baker ones in particular, where you always kind of think they've done this entire Tom Baker reading of a uh, of a Mr. James story, for example, or a Ray Bradbury horror story and he's not blinked once mm. so i ever get thinking tom baker can tell a horror story <laughs> ever ever blinking so we'll put uh, we'll put those on and again that's uh, also kind of co curated by nikki valentine who is a uh, a horror novelist breaking out into the uh, into the uh, writing industry herself you know i mean with a couple of uh, novels out at the moment i'm haunted last year um did really really well so did that, and we did a, a kind of an experiment in fear um, this year as well with uh, a couple of the guys behind uh, Blackout, who, who normally run stuff like Blackout uh, Disco and um, do kind of sensory deprivation kind of disco and music events. They did um, a kind of MK Ultra human experiment. Kind of that sounds so wrong, doesn't it? <laughs> Experimented on members of the audience. Yes, eugenics. Uh, We've done stuff before with the Thrill Laboratory over the years, and they're going to be returning uh, to us soon as, as well. Uh, and Dr. Brendan Dare, who um, has now got a bit of a career in TV as well, um, kind of we did like a live ghost, a live haunted uh, house um, experience the year before last uh, that was kind of um, beamed directly into the cinema. Um, where a series of uh, subjects who believed in the supernatural, you know, someone mm-hmm. who's um, uh, a firm believer in, uh, in, in scrying, someone who's a firm believer in Ouija, Ouija board, someone who uh, was a psychic, would all be taken into a, a genuine haunted house just across the road here from the, uh, the cinema um, to see if they could actually detect any um, supernatural phenomena. Um, which is brilliant and bizarre. The Thrill Lab have done stuff like wiring people up uh, to sort of measure the, the body and um, the, the full physical reaction to watching horror films. We did an experiment with them where they wired somebody up and watched a, a, a cult classic, actually, The Haunting, mm. uh, Robert Wise's version of it, and then um, watched a modern uh, horror film. I can't remember which one they were wired up to, uh, to compare whether old horror films that rely on, on suspense um, work better physiologically to create um, fear on the human body and the, you know, the physical experience of watching uh, compared to a more visceral modern yeah. 
And uh, we, what was the result of that? I'm, I'm fascinated. The uh, the older film, the older film. <laughs> no, it's no surprise this at all. Yeah. <laughs> the older film was more effective in generating um, yeah. uh, genuine physical responses from sweat to rapid eye movement to muscle contraction and so on and so forth. You know, mm. I mean, it, it's kind of predictable. We were comparing, I think, a, a kind of masterpiece of cinema. Exactly. Yeah. And something untested, unseen before. Yeah. So maybe that was a little bit um, too sort of, uh, you know, the, the, it was it maybe predictable what the results were. With the year after, we did a, an experiment with them where they uh, made uh, subjects wear um, gas masks so that they could monitor breathing as a physiological result um, to watching Piranha 3D. And uh, I was one of the subjects. And the live data, your heart rate, breathing rate, etc., projected onto the wall in the cafe bar, um, which meant that people could see the moment uh, there was a shout-out for um, an orgy, <laughs> my heart rate. Uh, <laughs> of course. Of course it does, yeah. yeah. It's great that everyone could see that. <laughs> yeah, we tried to sort of involve the audience um, through, the, through that kind of thing. You know, we've done laser mazes where you get killed and uh, someone else is killed if you can't get through the laser maze. We've done these experiments in fear, live. During the I guess the whole thing is, is we've got the collaboration that, um, with Broadway and Broadway's mm. got a building here and we've got, we've got the opportunity to, to do other stuff around the building and Broadway quite like it. And we like the idea that, that the festival isn't just one screen. You know, it's the screen, it's the bar, it's other rooms. It's you know, it's it's about the whole experience of being at Broadway, and we try and make sure that it, that it feels like that. That it feels like if you come for the weekend, you're here for the weekend, and there's stuff to see and there's stuff to do. And we'd love to do more. We'd like, yeah. you know, put on exhibitions. We'd love to do more live stuff. It, you know, it just comes down to um, the partnerships that we can make and what's available. Mm. It's certainly a fantastic space, and one of the nice things was uh, some of the some of the stuff that you got from The Shining. And I think yeah. you had room two three seven on the toilet door, didn't you, and stuff like that. Yeah, that was... we did, and we have we had some uh, we had some special prints from uh, at least from the Kubrick archive, and we had some vinyls that we put over the windows. Um, yeah, we had and we had some beer mats, special shining. Uh, it's lovely mats. to walk up a kind of mm. a, a deep blood red corridor mm. with the uh, pictures from the Kubrick archive before you go into the cinema to watch uh, watch you know this kind of new digitally remastered longer version of The Shining. Mm. And even the beer, we had a, a Shelley Dew Vale <laughs> yeah. ale, which, which was pretty good too. So let's talk about some of the films, though. Um, uh, Maniac was the first film that you showed the uh, uh, of the festival, and uh, it was a, a late edition, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, quite a coup to get it. Um, yeah, and it, very hard work. I mean, we do try to get the best of what's out there on, and I, I think largely we succeed. And um, it was hard to get, and um, it was a real effort getting it, and I think it was enormously well worth it. It was, it was kind of, yeah, late edition, doesn't appear in the brochure. It's, it's kind of a surprise film, and uh, we marketed it online to everybody, and we had a good, a good audience, I think, for it. Um, it's a fantastic film, and it is one of those ones that you kind of think is going to, if not divide a horror film audience at a horror film festival, certainly be one that rewards them in lots of ways. It's going to be contentious. It's going to create argument and discussion, and, and to be able to start the festival on that footing felt like the right thing to us. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Everyone's going to walk away going, oh, my God, that set, set up you know, a pretty high benchmark and yeah. it's uh it's a film that yeah, has to be seen i think hopefully uncut and on the big screen 
Mm. I mean, it's out here in, I think, the 15th of March. Mm. Uh, we should really check the BBFC website and see if they've been... The BBFC yeah. have changed their website design to make mm. it as hard as possible for people to be able to go on casually and find out latest um, acts of censorship, if I can say that. It's harder to go on that site now and find out immediately, oh, what are they looking at and what are they cutting? Mm. I'm sure they'll be looking at Maniac quite closely, even if it's just because of the notoriety of the original. Yeah, I think, I think they will be, yeah. Maniac was quite an interesting film to put on here, though, because it's obviously it's a, it's a remake of a you know quite a sleazy kind of yeah. <laughs> original film, which would only really be known by horror film fans. But because of the, kind of the, the lineage of, of the new one, with, especially with Elijah Wood being in it, it means that when we're marketing it to a Broadway audience, there's the potential of, of picking up you know, some of those people who, who aren't just coming to see it as, as a remake of, of an earlier horror film. They're, they're coming to see it because it's got that kind of lineage with Elijah Wood and the director and the producer. Yeah, they're going to get a lot of Tolkien fans to see it. <laughs> yeah, Frodo goes psycho. <laughs> well, people shouldn't forget that he was in Sin City as well, wasn't he? As a... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and he yeah. obviously likes to play really edgy, difficult, um, psychologically damaged characters as well. You know what I mean? I kind of think he's a very good actor. And also it's quite a fascinating film. You know what I mean? I, I, I guess people are reading about, about it online and uh, it's shot almost entirely, I'm going to say here, uh, without wanting to give any spoilers, from his point of view. Mm. And, um, that doesn't mean that Elijah Wood's uh, not in it. His presence is felt all the time. Mm. Um, you know, he is very, very, very good in this film. It's very raw, incredibly unsettling. The violence is uh, in your face, literally, mm. uh, all, all the time. I mean, it's one of the very few films that's actually been shot that way, isn't it? And I suppose the most recent one before Maniac was um, um, Enter the Void. Enter the Void, yeah. yeah. I always yeah. kind of think back to, was it Lady in the Lake? Yeah, which was one of the first ones, wasn't it? Yeah, and I kind of... It's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating technique, one that lends itself entirely to cinema, which cinema avoided for so many mm. years and only now seems to have kind of considered it as a valid form, I think, largely because of point-of-view gameplay, mm. um, which is a pity. As it, I think it, you know, it, it, kind of, it does lend itself to what cinema is about, you know, that kind, yeah. of, kind of raw, kind of pure experience. And certainly going back... Back to the BBFC, one of the things that they used to uh, get mm. them up in arms in the 80s about this, you know, this, the original slasher cycle was the point of view camera work that, in their opinion, made you identify with the killer. So yeah. to have uh, this new maniac that's entirely shot that way is certainly going to raise a few hackles, I think, probably amongst the old school. It's the, enti- it's the entire point of the film, isn't it? Yeah. It's the entire point of the film is, is about your identification throughout the film. Yeah. Uh, um, and I think it's a challenging film, you know what I mean? It's a challenging film, and not in a bad way at all. I think it it is certainly incredibly stylized and stylish, um, and there are questions and arguments and debates to be had about realism in the film, as mm-hmm. well as the point of view and the kind of reliability of this of, of Elijah Wood's character as a narrator. Do you know what I mean? But those conversations will have to be had after everyone's oh, yeah. seen them. I think it's a weird, weird argument that, that comes up when people imagine that because you're seeing something from somebody's point of view that you're somehow magically going to become them as soon as yeah. you leave 
Yeah, rather than yeah. just it being a way of you understanding why somebody might do some quite hideous acts, it becomes something that, you know, the people that like the BBFC imagine that you're going to walk out of the cinema and suddenly you've become possessed. Well, it's, it's strange, isn't it? You, you would have thought it would be the opposite way around, that you identify with the person's face on the screen rather than the, the yeah, I think taking I've, the point of view camera. One of the greatest, I mean, one of the greatest things that it's clearly kind of referencing at points as well, you know, is uh, Peeping Tom. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it's hard to talk about these, isn't it, without spoiling the ends of everything? Well, well yeah. yeah. That, we uh, mustn't do that. <laughs> sympathy for the devil is the uh, is the kind of important kind of thing as well, isn't it? Mm. About understanding character by allowing us to empathise with them, even during these most atrocious things, is actually quite a brave thing for filmmakers to mm. to attempt. You know, what I mean, they've been attempting it forever. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's the point of drama. Yeah. <laughs> So I think the BBFC would be silly, and unfortunately they, they do spend a lot of their time imagining things. Yeah, yeah. Well, talking about realism, as you was mentioning earlier, the, the, the next film that kind of stuck out for me was Ben Wheatley's Sightseers, and yeah. Mr Wheatley was in attendance as well, which is nice to kind of see him there in his all his downbeat glory. Yeah. Um, and with Steve, with Steve Oram as well, the, the yeah. writer star, Yeah, uh, it meant that there was a lot of beards um, everyone, everyone seems to be sporting a rather large uh, beard. They've all been outside, weather beaten. Well, that's right. Time. I think it was a condition of entry to the film, wasn't it? That even <laughs> even the women had to have beards. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. We expect everyone who comes to Mayhem to have a large beard. <laughs> <laughs> so, what did you think to the film? It certainly seemed to go down very well with the audience. There was a lot of audience response, lots of laughter, lots of sort of shocked. I think the film silences and times. Yeah. I think that's the fascinating thing that Ben Wheatley achieves uh, in all of his films is yeah. the kind of relationship between um, comedy and violence, mm. uh, or shock and violence. Like he, like I think it's a much more interesting film than Kill List, and I think it um, achieves this kind of incredible. It's not a balance. It's all about imbalance. It's about throwing people off balance. No sooner are you laughing than you're showing the kind of effect of violence you know what i mean in in close-up in and it's very raw and very very horrible so in the middle of a kind of um uh a, a, you know very comedy uh, road movie uh, relationship kind of comedy there are these sudden bursts of extreme violence that unsettle the audience and make everything else after it um, unsettling and i think it's a, an achievement and i think it's a, a much more important film than kill list as well I mean, it, it really does kind of reference some very disparate things, doesn't it? Um, as you say, there's the violence in there. There's also a, almost a kind of carry-on carry on camping sense yeah. to it, or at least a kind of nuts-in-May sense to it as well. So to bring, bring those kind of very disparate things within British cinema together is uh, very interesting. But it also, had that, it also had that kind of, um, to me, it had that kind of feel of, I quite like it when you have these kind of American tropes, and then one of those American tropes is is the kind of Badlands idea of the kind yeah. of couple teaming up and then going on a murderous spree yeah. of country, or like the honeymoon, yeah, the honeymoon killers. killers. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's another one. It's quite quite interesting to to have that very kind of American story, if you like, boiled down to and put into a very very British setting. You know, because it it becomes immediately a little more absurd just because of the you know because instead of like these these kind of you yeah. know giant kind of vistas of Americana you've got the the, the pencil museum. Mm. But yeah, the other thing about that as well was the fact that um it was actually 
a lot more sort of um, stylistically um, composed um, than I think a lot of people uh, give it credit for. Um, it made Britain look incredibly grim um, and, and wet and overcast, while at the same time, I think, being very truthful um, and not missing a trick about you know, what the British landscape really is like and where we're, where our place in that is. Do you know what I mean? It's very kind of... Uh, yeah. May, I mean, does similar kind of things as well. Yeah. Right there, about the British landscape and about our place in it. I think maybe what we were saying, the, the, the way these things kind of converge is that kind of sense of ab- the absurd, isn't it? It's sort of absurd that we should want to go out in a caravan in, yeah. in the weather that we have. And, and it's thing, kind of it absurd was- that a pair of killers would go out in... Uh, in in the British yeah. countryside as well, so I think the, the the kind of thing there as well is that idea of it being a kind of crossover as well. You've got not just this convergence thing, but the idea that it's a British comedy, yeah, um, that uh, is produced, you know, by a very famous uh, director and um, you know Edgar Wright, and people are going to go to it for that reason too. A British comedy that in reality is. Um, quite horrific and disturbing, a lot more disturbing than Shaun of the Dead. Mm. Um, and I keep thinking, you know, I wonder how um, audiences outside of a horror film festival really uh, reacted to the film. Do you know what I mean? I, I know horror film fans will react to it in a, in a certain way, but I, I'd, I'd be fascinated to find out how mm. mainstream audiences had uh, had reacted. It's done very well, hasn't it, I think, mm. at the box office? Um, into- it's a pity to see, a pity to see, I think, that it's been overlooked in uh, in the BAFTAs, particularly, I think, in uh, in terms of things like production design. The film's got an incredible yeah. uh, controlled look. Yeah. 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 Big thumbs up, I think, for that one. Shall we jump? Let's jump forward a little bit. Uh, I mean, I will ask both of you towards the end what, what your own personal favourites were and, you know, any films that we kind of missed out that you wanted to kind of talk about. But. Um, I suppose a film that I found particularly powerful, personally, was Chained, mm. which was a Jennifer Lynch's new film. Um, yeah, Chambers Lynch. Very, yeah. very, yeah, Chambers, Jennifer Chambers Lynch. Very, yeah, a, I think I wrote in my review for Starburst that it was a a real gut-wrenching film. Uh, I can't remember a film, in fact, that I've seen recently that had such a powerful Mm-mm. effect on me at the end and it really kind of did make my stomach tense yeah, up and yeah and very powerful stuff what did you think to that one we watched it in its uh it, it, not its rawest state but we watched it in a pretty rough cut um a series of uh of separate uh reels uh incomplete oh have you are you still there i'm still here yeah sort of weird noise uh, a series of um uh, you know, kind of uh, separated, uh, rough, incomplete um, edit reels uh, with, you know, with kind of little modifications, grades, uh, a few special effects, and etc. to be added later. Uh, and it was still really powerful. And I kept thinking one of the things that made it really, really powerful was that incredible central performance. Mm. Um, it's so controlled yeah. and, and this constant, constant air of menace and threat yeah. So that entire thing is maintained so so well all the t- all the way through it, I think. Um and it yeah, I think it is a really powerful film and it, it it's kind of already been talked about quite a bit on the internet as as her return to form, but I kind of 
to give her more credit than that in a, in a weird way, I mean, she's made consistently interesting films. This is maybe the film that's going to be her breakthrough because it's mm-hmm. going to she can remove herself from being a uh, a cult filmmaker yeah. and be recognised as someone who's got her own voice and uh, and quite a uh, a strong one. It seems to be a theme that she returns to a lot, isn't it? Is this idea of somebody who's held captive, you know, kind of in this film, literally chained up within a room. Yeah. It's, a, it's a big thing in there, isn't it, uh, about bad uh, parenting, bad fathers. Yeah, yeah. I think you actually introduced it as the ultimate bad dad movie. Yeah. <laughs> which almost lulled you into a false sense of security that there might be a bit, of, there might be some laughs in there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's very very serious. It, mm. it, you know what? It's it's kind of nice that it's uh, very very serious. That there are no laughs. That it doesn't um, kind of sort of uh, pander to its audience or, or worry about you know where, where there are and how they're viewing it. It just you know it's just very much its own thing. You know, single minded, despairing, mm. uh, bleak, a proper horror film. Yeah. I think it's tre- treating everybody. And its subject matter very seriously. It's quite interesting. I think we found through through the years programming the festival that we we've ended up in a way with almost like a, a, a template for where certain films should go. I think last year in in the same um, slot we had a horrible way to die, um, yeah. which is another kind of American grim American <laughs> indie. Mm. Um, and it seems seems to be like you know the early afternoon on the Saturdays is, is is the time when people are going to be prepared to be kind of you know psychologically put through the ringer. <laughs> well, you can go and have a pint of Shelley Duvail afterwards. You exactly, know. then you can recover. A bit. I don't think you'd recover if you had a hangover if it was on Sunday. I oh. think it would just send a, send you completely over the edge, and that will be it. Well, well, a couple of years ago, we we ended the festival with Martyrs, which is our last film on a Sunday night. <laughs> people were just coming out like they'd been punched in the face. <laughs> Oh, yeah, well, they and then, then we just had to send them home, and it was, yeah, yeah. so we've learned from that lesson. What a bleak Sunday <laughs> evening. But um, I think it is that thing, it's, it, it's partly that thing of trying to think of how to programme the festival overall, you know, I mean, which films go in what order, um, you know, like start the morning ref- trying to refresh the audience and then plunging them into uh, the kind of darker world that Jennifer Lynch um, created with Chained. Felt like the right thing to do, do you know what I mean? That there is a kind of sort of a roller coaster design or pattern to the overall. Mm. Um, yeah. program um you know that i know that sounds really old-fashioned of me but i kind of think oh you need variety do you know what i mean and you need that sort of modulation yeah um you know taking people on a journey taking yeah. a little left field you know then something different you know just changing the mood and tone all the time we follow change for example with um the uh, a weird kind of uh, world premiere in some ways the, the british premiere of the tv series secret of crickley hall yeah um with joe hearn uh, the director and and adapter of it there mm. and it's completely different from chained obviously mm. uh, a good thing to do you know what i mean to be able to take people out of chained and give them a a break you know something that's much more te- televisual sounds mm. like it's not cinematic but in reality Television has got such a, a strong tradition of ghost stories and horror stories that we wanted to be able to uh, reflect some of that as well. But Chained is its own peculiar thing, and I really hope people uh, discover that film and support it, I think. It would be really good to see some more films like that. Well, Secret of Crickley Hall felt positively sort of com- comforting afterwards, I think. Yeah. <laughs> a, a nice kind of ghost story, as you say. But Manborg, I think, was pretty much... Uh, I think yeah. that's the Sunday morning, wasn't it? 
Yeah. yeah, which was a, re- a real antidote, I think, to... Uh, yeah, we like to wake people up after yeah. a long night of drinking and festivaling. That's right. That's something right. short and sweet and fun. Yeah, and made for $1,000, I hear. I mean, that can't be right, can it? I think there's always those stories, aren't there, where someone, you know, I had to have blood transfusions, I sold my blood to make this film. <laughs> um, or, you know, this only cost a, a packet of biscuits to make, I think, which was 100 quid in a packet of biscuits was yeah. Colin, wasn't it? 50 quid in a packet. 50 quid in a packet of biscuits. Right. Um I'm always wary of that because I'm sure if you actually looked at the time given over to people for free and yeah. if postmortem was really paid for and so on and so forth, if you had to pay for the computer, you did it on all those kind of things, it would be a very different kind of cost. But when you watch Manborg, it's it's kind of beautiful to to kind of know that the green screen uh, footage was all created in their garage. And it really is telling because you can hear the, the tinny echo on the sound recording of the garage walls bouncing around. Even if they're in a huge, expansive exterior scene, you can hear that kind of tinny echo. And I kind of thought, well, it's a film that's made for, you know, love yeah. and fun. And people, you know, genuinely, the enthusiasm of everyone on screen is infectious. It's one of those rare things where everyone probably had a good time making it and everyone had a good time watching it. Oh, yeah. I mean, the audience loved it. Yeah, and it does look right. cheap. I mean, it doesn't look expensive. It's, a cheap I mean, it's cheap in a good way. Film. It looks, you know, it's cheap in the in, in the very best way. It's, it looks better than the old than, than Flash Gordon, the uh, the seventies, the seventies one. <laughs> 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 it's like, I'm casting, uh, like, like it's some kind of blasphemy. Yeah, you're right though. Um, it's just it's such a great film. Everyone should uh, should see Manbog, but recreating it, trying to find the right atmosphere. We showed it uh, as an early morning kind of refresher. I think it could work really well on a kind of Friday or Saturday night if you've had uh, you've got some mates over, your friends are all together. You, you've already drunk uh, most of the uh, of the six pack that you've got. Yeah, yeah. You, I think you have to be half cut and in the right right mood, or you have to be with a, a really big kind of gang of people. The, the great thing was as we were promoting Manborg. It's got such an awesome poster, such an awesome trailer. All you've got to do is write, hey, this is like those VHS films mm. uh, from the 80s. You know, those kind of mental science fiction kind of films. Like, Just please come and see this. People go, oh, my God, it's like this. And they would be throwing their tuppence worth in, you know, because there's such a huge cult uh, audience, you know, to, to want to see those films, you know what I mean? Want to recreate that kind of magic. Um, and it does work. It's like a sometimes people that pastiche cult movies end up making some awful rubbish, you know, not really understanding either the genre or the audience. This one gets it 100% perfect. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very, uh, you know, there's a definitely an intelligence there um, in the background. Dead yeah. Sushi as well, another film. That... Steve Kostansky, they need to be uh, um, give all the praise. Dead Sushi. Yeah. Oh my... yeah. <laughs> another, another uh, well, yeah. you know, another jaw-dropping movie from, from Japan. I mean, all yeah, those guys I... on. Obviously, there's been like a whole series of of, um, of kind of cult Japanese uh, extreme cinema that's kind of um, been uh, at the kind of surreal edge of violence mm. and spectacle and comedy, and uh, a lot of the time they have had their eye on a uh, on an American market, I think, really to kind of sell those those films internationally, and yeah. it's worked well with with companies like Sushi Typhoon uh, and Akatsu, kind of making and churning out. Those things. What's happened recently, it seems, is there's been a kind of golden age of absolutely mental, completely um, off their rocker uh, films, where you genuinely, with Dead Sushi, for example, the kind of story of a of a girl whose father doesn't believe she should be allowed to make sushi, even though she's an expert, because because of her uh, her being a, a young woman, uh, so she ends up working at a, a hotel 
that is soon under attack by living dead sushi. Mm. Um, luckily, her martial arts skills and cookery um, skills will be able to save the day. You kind of think, will this work? Will this work? I'm going to watch this film. Will, will I actually enjoy this? Uh, will it be too long or too ridiculous? Or can they sustain this gag? Yeah, they can, they can sustain the gag. <laughs> they can do it quite well. Um, I've not seen a film as willfully um, stupid. Mm. Mm. Uh, it's really, really good fun. Um and uh, and it's quite charming, you know. A lot of those other films—it <laughs> sounds really stupid, doesn't it? A lot of those other films are sometimes bordering on the offensive. Sure. Yeah. Well, it has a sort of sort of you know that kind of feminist under undercurrent as well. It reminded me a little bit of the films of Itami, uh, Tampopo. I think I did yeah, yeah, Tampopo yeah. in the nineteen eighties. Very sort of similar. What a fantastic reference, of course. Yeah, yeah Tam- very similar sort of theme. There is. This is kind of like uh, Mutant Girl Squad crossed with Tampopo. Yeah, <laughs> as you post a quote. <laughs> yeah, but has the film got a distributor yet? Do you know? Um, I don't know. I, I I know um, I th- that it's certainly done a good festival run, and um, I'm hoping that that's the end. The end of its kind of festival run. What's going to happen now is that it's going to be picked up and given proper release in the UK. I really hope so. I mean, it's one of those things where you kind of are really pleased as a festival to be able to host films like that because you want it to get out there and get an audience um, and for that buzz to kind of uh, allow that process to take place, you know what I mean? Allow people to go, well, there is a point of buying this film. We really should release it. I'm hoping that's happening. Mm. Same thing, for example, for for Rabies, you know, it, yeah. uh, um, the so-called uh, first horror film to be made in Israel. That film is, is uh, a couple of years old. Yeah. yeah, and it's only festivals that are keeping it alive, and I can't think of a of a film more in need of a UK release. Mm. Uh, so, uh, if if anyone's seen um, Calavet Rabies, if if they've if they've seen that film, they'll know what I'm on about. It's it's full of twists, it's full of surprises for an audience. Um, I kind of think maybe it's my film of the festival, the film that I really enjoyed. Uh, well, it's just of, interesting because it, it 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 constantly surprises you, constantly goes yeah. in different directions yeah. to, to, to where you expect it to go. And I think that's always yeah. a good... And I would really want to see that, getting a good UK release, you know, yeah. even if it's straight to Blu-ray and DVD. I just think it's going to find uh, a, a cult audience that give it uh, all the sort of energy it needs to build an even bigger audience than that. Yeah. As you say, it's a very interesting kind of surprising film, isn't it? That It, it kind of touches upon those tropes, but it kind of goes off in its own direction in quite subtle ways, interesting ways. Do you think the title, though, is a bit of a misnomer? Yep, everyone's going to expect uh, to see some kind of rabid zombie movie. Yeah. yeah, not going to get that at all from Rabies. Uh, it's, um, it certainly is about a kind of, you know, uh, infectious violence, the yeah. idea that yeah. things will spiral out of control, you know what I mean, that um, anyone who steps into this situation, into the woods in the story uh, with an aim to help someone will soon be contributing even more to the uh, the horror and violence that's going to start spiraling out of their control um it is a kind of unique film i, I do i do agree i think that it's the wrong title and maybe that's mm. the problem yeah maybe that is the problem yeah i don't know what i'd call it though well it's kind of, it me of maybe Sim- readers could perhaps uh, and listeners could uh, could uh, write in with some suggestions if they've seen the film yeah please do so what did we have next after that, that was, well we had the shining didn't we which which you showed in the in the longer version 
which was the version yeah. that I think had been originally released in the States and Kubrick had cut it down a little bit, hadn't he, after the previews? Yeah, for UK audiences. It's, it, it, it has, it has to be said, occasionally uh, slipped out onto uh, ITV uh, screenings in this longer version, um, but it has been digitally remastered and re-released to UK cinemas thanks to the BFI. Yeah, um, They've been really good uh, supporters of us in our archive and search for stuff in the past as well. It was really nice to... Screen it. We we were originally going to we knew we were going to screen it uh, a long time ago, long before the uh, the HD remaster. Um, so we're constantly trying to decide whether or not we should be honouring Kubrick's thing of showing the the shorter thirty five version, which originally the Kubrick estate would only support, and then they started to support the idea of showing the US release, the longer version that has now been doing the rounds and is still out there. I think it's still showing in some repertory cinemas, sure. um, but. There's a whole audience out there as well who've never seen The Shining mm. on the big screen. Mm, yeah. um, and although people you know, will have chased down the longer version or they will have not chased down the longer version, they might be familiar with it, but I think only you know, on, on DVD uh, and they haven't really had that kind of opportunity to sit back in a cinema. And It's one of the nice things about showing archive films is that you can watch an archive film with mates, you know, at home, or you can watch an archive film like that cult classic or whatever you want to call it on, on your own. But the viewing experience is altered completely the moment you sit in a cinema, uh, a packed-out theatre like that, with, mm. you know, everybody thinking they know what they're getting into, they think they know the film. The mood changes, you know, it enhances the experience, I think. I think it's one of those things, it's, it's quite heartening, actually, one of those things where, you know, you hear so much about concerns about sort of death of cinema and, and kind of everybody now watching films in a completely different way and watching films as downloads and watching, you know, and streaming films and watching films on iPhones. You know, to, to put on a film like The Shining, even though it, you know, is a new version, but, you know, putting the film on like that, which has been on TV, which has been available for years, you know, which you, you imagine that, you know, 90% of the audience there will have seen, and yet you still get a sold-out, fully sold-out screening. We had to you know, turn people away. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. It's very heartening that people appreciate that it is the cinema experience that, that, they're, um, that they're coming for. You know, they want to see that, that film projected big in a dark room with a bunch of strangers. You know, that's, the, that, that's yeah, what they're, yeah. you know... Mm. Key and I think to, people to still do that it. thing. They still got to say, "I'm going to take so and so the pictures with me because they've never seen The Shining." Yeah, for sure. How, that must have been good fun. So, you know, to go to the bar afterwards and, and say, "Well, what did you think of that?" Because um, that still still means, I guess, yeah, that there are people there who've never seen it and they need to discover it. And I think, yeah, it's it's, it's like Steve's right there. There's too much talk about it with Death Cinema. People still want that cinema experience. Mm. Sure. I, I mean, especially Kubrick as well because he's. He puts so much into his the visuals of his films, doesn't he? The photography, etc. Do you think it uh, does it gain anything from in the longer version? Is there anything that the film gains from those extra scenes that, that he? Um, it's I, it's purely subjective. It's hard to say, isn't it? Because um, I think the film's maybe better as a tighter, shorter film. Mm. However, <laughs> watching both, I'm also aware of surprises yeah um oh now it's really hard to talk about these without adding some <laughs> but those surprises um either enhance my appreciation of the shorter version or they make me kind of think about what people were intending when they first released that film how they kind of think of these kind of nuances and there are nuances in this longer version that do not detract 
from the original version of the film at all. In fact, I think they add to your understanding of the meaning of the film mm. and the way that it works as a piece of sustained suspense. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly got that wonderful long build-up, hasn't it, which is quite unique for me in a Kubrick film. For me, his films always start off very strongly but t- kind of tend to tail off a little bit. Um, but The Shining is certainly one that starts strongly and it just keeps going and building and building. It's fantastic yeah, that way. Absolutely. That's a really good point, isn't it? That I, I do think that it very rarely as well for a lot of horror films, particularly modern horror films, that like to start with a bang then quieten down. Uh, this one takes its time, really does take its time building. So on to American Mary then, which is a film that's getting a lot of coverage at the moment. It's uh, just about, yeah. I think it's just about to be released, and I know that the Soska... Just, yes, right, the Soska twins are just finishing their tour of the UK. Yeah, just doing the, the, the Fright Fest tour. Yeah. Um, fantastic um, filmmakers with a big cult following. There they are, they've done Dead Hooker in a trunk, and now they, they're going to do their follow-up. And I think everyone thinks they know what they they should expect. And uh, Jen and Sylvia delivered a, uh, a completely different film, <laughs> one that uh, completely confounded, I think, uh, previous fans who thought it was going to be some kind of knockabout um, genre film. Instead, they've made something really subtle, uh, something incredibly visual, mm. uh, and something that's, that still manages to be in your face mm. and subtle. Okay, I think mm. that was quite an achievement. Yeah. Um, and a great central performance as well, really good exactly, central performance. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, everyone kind of... I think Catherine Isabel was one of those people that should have been a star years and years ago, straight after the Ginger Snaps trilogy, and why she uh, became, you know, had much smaller roles, I don't know. It's helped her become a great character actress, and uh, she certainly is brilliant starring in American Mary. I mean, as we said earlier about the production design and... Um, uh, it being a very visual film, uh, I was very, very impressed by how insh- assured it was in the way that the the design really kind of fed into the themes of the film, and it, it it's it felt like the work of of very, very skilled filmmakers, very carefully put together, carefully, carefully designed at all stages of the process. Especially when you consider, I think the the shooting um, schedule was really short, wasn't yeah, it? Really like short. Seven- 16, 17 days, I think it was. Yeah, it's so just, very, very uh, just over a couple of weeks, and um, it is a good, good-looking film. And they've talked uh, at length, really, now, haven't they, about their influences with with uh, people like Mika Takashi, and um, I think there's a, there's obviously kind of some Dario Argento in there as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's nice to be able to say that that it isn't a, a film that's derivative of those other filmmakers' themes, but it's stylistically strong, purposeful, thematic. Mm. I mean, quite Irish as well, you know. Yeah, there was the, very much so. The, the whole kind of sense of an under, of a sort of dark underworld that yeah. uh, kind of descending into. But uh, Chris, you mentioned something in a previous correspondence that you 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 were worried that the Soskers might face some kind of misogynistic backlash. Do you... Yeah, I think I, I think so. Um, there's they're very sort of upfront, uh, charismatic, um, self-promoting filmmakers. Yeah. Um, and which means that a lot of people focus on their gender yeah. um, and their sexuality, I guess, and then start to use that as a stick to beat them with is what, sure. I, uh, what I'm worried about particularly. And um, I think some of that is happening. I keep thinking there are plenty of other film directors who are charismatic, self-promoting, um, and are as much about marketing themselves as their films. Mm. 
And they don't get beaten uh, with a stick for the way they look, the way they dress, the way they talk. Yeah. I think that really odd. Yeah. Uh, Quentin Tarantino, for example, I thought was particularly pissy and rude to Krishnan Gurumurti. Uh, probably tired, probably yeah. tired yeah. Um, of doing those kind of round, round interviews. He just had a legion of supporting fanboys defend him. Uh, you know, how dare Channel 4 News treat him like that, asking that question about violence in cinema. Yeah. Thinking like, what? Tarantino is, is, is fantastic at promoting his films, and he, he uses himself. He's as famous as any film he's ever made. You know what I mean? And the Soska sisters uh, only have to get up uh, on stage and everybody uh, can say, oh, well, you know, they're only famous because of the way they look. Mm. It's not, that's not fair or true. Mm. You know, they've made a very, very good film, and I'm sure it's one that will, will split audiences. I'm, I'm sure it will. But watch the film on its own terms, you know what I mean? Don't get so kind of wrapped up in the, uh, in the promotion machine, you know what I mean, of, of these kind of things. And you kind of think, yes, it's a, it's a good uh, breakthrough horror film. It's got a great central performance. It, it's stylish uh, and it deals with uh, some strong themes in a really strong way. And it's, it's well worth going out there. Any horror film fan should watch it just as a horror film and they'll be uh, suitably impressed. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a film that's going to be remembered. I think it's... Uh... You know, if if there's if from the festival there's a cult film in the making for me, it was it was that one. I think it will be yeah, back yeah. on as a as quite an important piece of work, really. Absolutely. So now we come to the to the to the, to the last film there, which is your film, Stephen. Yeah. Dead Mine. Quite a departure from for you, it, it would seem. <laughs> after Mum and Dad, which you know, a, a very small budget, very. Um, claustrophobic movie here we've got a kind of you know it's uh, an action adventure as well as having horror elements and there's yeah. a bit of kind of raiders of the lost ark in there a bit a bit of kind of almost italian cannibal movies yeah. in the jungle in there i mean and it's and it's all you hold it together really well the whole the whole thing comes together it's really exciting beautiful to look at very assured the action sequences are great so what, what's happening now with dead mine uh, well, Deadmine should be coming out over here. It's, at the moment, it's playing in cinemas in Indonesia. Um, it was because it was made for um, HBO Asia. They were the, the main financiers, and it was made primarily for, for an Asian market. It was made to go on their channel, um, but also to um, play theatrically. And it's played in um, Singapore, the Philippines, and now Indonesia. So it'll be out here. E1 have got it, and it'll be out here in the next couple of months. They're just kind of preparing the, the release at the moment. But, um, yeah, it was uh, quite a departure. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, for me, the, there were a lot of things that were kind of already in place. The, the script came to me. The, there was a version of the script already written, and I, I basically redrafted the script um, and was asked to redraft the script to uh, make it better fit the, the budget that was available. And for me, it was just the opportunity to do something that was completely different to mum and dad, um, kind of out of my comfort zone because it was working on the other side of the world with uh, nobody that I'd ever worked with before and with working with a lot of things that I hadn't worked to that worked with before to that extent, like, you know, guns and prosthetics and uh, CGI. Um, but it was, you know, it was a great opportunity just to, just to get the experience of doing all that and to work with an international cast um, you know, to work with these people, um, we have actors from Indonesia, Japan, Singapore, Malaysia, as well as the UK. And yeah, the the, the for me, it was just that chance to do something that was kind of like um, 
a pulp adventure. You know, I just kept thinking of it. I, I was reading a lot of kind of pulp, pulp novels and stuff like that, and mm. you know, thinking that in a way, this you know, you could have this film made in the thirties. You know, it's that kind of you know bunch of. Mm people on an island kind of, you know, hunting for treasure and hacking through vines with machetes, you know, um, but also kind of feeding in a bit of that kind of, you know, 1970s kind of Italian kind of, uh, you know, cannibal movie stuff. Um, so it's just trying to sort of, you know, there, there were a lot of kind of um, uh, uh, challenges in terms of uh, fitting in a lot of the elements that were in the script and which had been kind of already kind of put in place and trying and trying to kind of make it work as narrative and trying to keep keep everything kind of moving along. Uh, again, it was it was a lot bigger budget than I had for Mum and Dad, but it wasn't that much longer a shoot. It was <laughs> it was only a week longer than the shoot for Mum and Dad, so it was still pretty kind of intense. Mm. Yeah, something of that scale done in I think it was twenty four days. It was. In British and American terms, it's still a very low budget. Oh god, yeah, yeah. And what one of the things that struck me when I was watching it was just how carefully controlled the camera is. You know, when it, you've got all those wonderful, the camera is constantly moving in it. Yeah. Um, even though it's kind of almost in a kind of subconscious way that you might notice it. Well, did you? How did you kind of prepare for that? Was it carefully storyboarded? Did you have this in we, in mind well, as you did? I mean. I worked with a really good um, DOP, John Radel from Australia, and and he very much likes to move the camera. He very much, you know, uh, you know, every shot he'll he'll want to put a little kind of track in and, and and do something. So certain sequences were storyboarded, certain of the action sequences, especially, were storyboarded. Um, but then a lot of it, we the difficulty was we were having to kind of um, uh, work really quickly. And a lot of times I would only ever get to see the, the finished set pretty much just before we we stepped on to start filming, just because the art department were having to work so hard and so quickly to get everything done. Mm. So a lot of it was, was basically shot listed pretty much on the fly, um, which was uh, difficult, but, you know, a really good kind of um, experience. Mm. In retrospect, not at the time, it was horrible. <laughs> In retrospect, it was, you know, it was good just to try and, you know, Myself and John, uh, we would just think about well, how do we, you know, how do we best sh- show off these sets? Because the sets were great. We had a fantastic cassette designer in Ian Bailey, um, who built us these fantastic uh, sets. And you know, and then part of it was was you know, th- there's a big central cast. There's like eight um, characters in, the, in some of the scenes. So some of it was just about you know, how do we get all of these people featured in the scene? You know, yeah. in this first kind of half an hour or so the first half an hour 40, 40 minutes of the movie there's like eight people moving around together so it's it's um but yeah we wanted to keep the camera pretty mobile and and, and to really exploit the the you know like i say exploit these sets and, and to get the most out of it but to also have this kind of sense of kind of movement and moving deeper and deeper into this space it, it allows you to do something else as well i kept thinking was the fact that the film uh, we're talking about shining a bit earlier it is a, a slow burning beginning and it allows to sort of be slightly off kilter and unsettled. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? As that kind of both the atmosphere is, is kind of um, setting in, mm. you start to feel that you get a sense of the characters before things really kick off. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, that was right. a particular strength of mum and dad as well. So, that, I mean, that's a, that was a quality that I think carried over into <laughs> Dead Mind. But, but what presumably was new for you was the kind of action adventure filmmaking yeah. how, how did you cope with that was that was that a kind of steep learning learning curve to do something <laughs> like that was but i had some i had some great all of the actors were really kind of up for it and we had we were working with a stunt team um 
and the actors had a kind of week-long kind of rehearsal during rehearsals before this year we had a, a week of, of running the lines but also interspersed with that they had a week working with a stunt team and we had a couple of actors um joe taslam who um was latterly in in the raid um he he's a kind of uh basically you know a judo expert and um very good at martial arts and mickey mizuno also fantastic at martial arts and fighting um she's in the hard revenge millie film yeah yeah and and she was in guilty of romance mm. that, that was last year as well so so with guys like those i mean they were you know they they came came to it with a, a lot of experience in doing that kind of stuff but all the cast were really really up for it and and you know we didn't have a lot of time to shoot those scenes all of those scenes especially the action scenes were shot very very quickly so we just yeah and there was a lot of things going on because a lot of times the actors were fighting against um stunt people who were wearing prosthetics and the prosthetics would take five or six hours to get on so that would cut down your amount of shooting time that you had for the scene because it, you know you, you could only start shooting once they they were fully fully made up and on set so it was uh that was kind of challenging but it was yeah like i said we had a, we had a good crew and the cast were uh were really up for it and yeah it was it was a steep learning curve but uh, but i enjoyed it i you know that was that was one of the attractions for doing it was that it was just it was just something that, that i i hadn't really done before and it was just great to have the opportunity to do it yeah can you see yourself going more in that direction into into action cinema uh, uh, I'd be interested in doing more of it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I mean, at, at the moment, I'll you know, I, I I'm just looking out for you know what the next opportunity is. I've got a couple of projects lined up. I've got a um, anthology film, British anthology film that that I've just finished the script for, and then I've got another script that's much less action oriented, that's much more kind of psychological. But I, I definitely want to do something like that again. It was you know, it was really good fun working with those guys. I have to say, as Steve's friend, I think the. Uh the anthology film combines the best of the kind of grim character and situations uh, from mum and dad with the kind of the sort of action set piece that you'll see in, in Dead Mind. Well, keep us posted on that and keep us yeah, posted definitely. on, on uh, Dead Mine as well. Yeah. Um, so that here at Starburst we can, we can feature that if we can. That would be great. So anyway, uh, let's just kind of round off the mayhem discussion then with... Uh, your thoughts for the the, the uh, forthcoming mayhem? It's p- probably a few months away for for us. Probably not. Doesn't seem that far away for you. Uh, it doesn't seem far away. <laughs> we're, we're already we're about to go and leave you right now. Yeah. Uh, so we can have a meeting with Broadway Cinema about the that very thing. <laughs> so what can you all... tell us? And have you got any any nice tidbits you can uh, tantalise us with for what's coming up <laughs> next year? Yeah. I can definitely guarantee there will be horror films <laughs> <laughs> and shorts and surprises, but we can't say yeah. uh, any more about about it really at this stage. It it, it is too early, and, and we're in the kind of the beginning of the, uh, of the of the kind of planning stage, the very very beginning of the planning stage. Um, there are all we, kinds of things up in the air and plate spinning. We'll, we'll see. But we are open to suggestions. If anybody wants to see anything like archive or cult on the big screen, oh, yeah. just get in touch and, and, and let us know. And also, if anybody has, um, you know, is, is is finishing a film or making a film, um, independent horror film, then we're always kind of happy to look at those and, and see if we can feature them in the festival. Uh, yeah, and to be able to send them to us, you know, go to the, the website and, uh, and uh, the address is there. Uh, but essentially, you're sending stuff to Broadway Cinema. Yeah. Uh, in Nottingham for uh, for mayhem, but we'd love to see some some new independent features uh, and shorts. Features, yeah, yeah features and, and shorts, particularly you know good British stuff. We we love. Yeah, brilliant, Chris, Stephen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, John.
For more information on the Mayhem Film Festival, visit mayhemhorrorfest.co.uk. Well, that's it for tonight's Friday Night Frights. But don't forget you can reach me via the Starburst website or on Twitter at Starburst underscore mag. Until next time, stay Stay scared. scared.